electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Everybody, I'm Contessa Brewer, and for Brian Sullivan, right now on Last Call, the news crypto has been waiting for a huge court win since Bitcoin and its competitors soaring. But will the victory be short-lived? President Biden reveals a landmark plan to cut drug prices. The side effects, however, could prove harsh. VinFast's runaway rally smashes into a brick wall. We'll pull apart the wreckage. Meta uncovers a Chinese influence operation of epic proportions. We have the stunning details. Plus, return to the office or else. Amazon CEO lays down the law on defiant employees. Except, will it fall on deaf ears? And Dr. ChatGPT, I presume. Wait till you hear how well the AI chatbot has done against physicians. That and much more. Last Call is up right now. Let's get right to our developing story tonight. Hurricane Idalia barreling toward Florida's Gulf Coast, prompting evacuation orders in more than 20 counties and fears of widespread damage. NBC News correspondent Guad Venegas has the latest for us from Crystal River, Florida. How are they preparing there, Guad? Contessa, people here have either evacuated or they went home. Uh, those that are a little further away from the water and got everything they could as best as possible, water, food, generators, to prepare for the storm. Now, this area where we're at is a zone A, so there's a mandatory evacuation order for this specific uh, part of Florida. 22 counties have some type of evacuation order uh, as of now. Now, the state of Florida has a map of these evacuation zones. They have different zones uh, that are designated letters. Uh, The A zones are mainly the ones that right now have these mandatory evacuations. And you can see behind me, uh, this is an area where a lot of the properties are right next to the water. Uh, This is one of the channels that leads out into the Gulf of Mexico, the Gulf in which uh, the hurricane is now making its way north. Now, these communities have a lot of water and a lot of trees, two of the elements that authorities have warned about. Of course, the main concern right now is the possibility of that storm surge. If this water next to me were to rise more than six or seven feet, According to the people that work in this area and live here, more than uh, six or seven feet, then it would start going into the homes that are right next to us here. There's a hotel right next to us who told me, uh, some of the workers told me, if we get more than six feet, then the water will be going uh, into the hotel. So there's a mandatory evacuation order here. A lot of residents did leave, but we spoke to some of the ones that decided to stay who told us that they've been through storms before and they're hoping that because they're a little further from the water, they would hope they would be okay. But of course, they are ready 
to leave if things get bad, uh, the short distance to a neighbor's home or somewhere nearby. Of course, it's not easy to leave your home once the hurricane hits or the storm is coming through, right? As of now, people who prepared have to wait for the storm to pass. Now, also, the Department of Corrections here has informed that 4,000 prisoners or inmates have been moved in the state of Florida, and they are prepared to move more if necessary, as we prepare for the worst to come. We got one of the outer bands of the storm about half an hour ago with heavy rain and wind, and that has stopped now, but we're still waiting for the worst of it as the storm makes its way, mainly to an area that's about 100 miles northwest of us, this area referred to as the Big Bend, that's sort of in between the west coast of Florida and then the rest of the panhandle. So as of now, it's just uh, people waiting for the storm to make landfall, with, of course, that main concern being the possibility of the storm surge, Contessa. And we were just seeing some video there of Sanibel Island. You could see the skies darkening. One thing that strikes me about this, because it's, it's um, projected to go across the northern part of Florida and then up along uh, South Carolina and the like, that a lot of times the evacuation route people take ends up still putting them right in the path of what could be maybe a, a, a weakened hurricane, but still a dangerous, potentially deadly storm nonetheless. Correct. So that's because of that storm surge, right? So we have the storm where if you look at the patterns, you look at the models right now, it's been moving slightly west and that storm is now headed to this area that's just slightly west of us in the panhandle of Florida and then it would make its way uh, through land. But uh, independently of what happens with the eye of the storm, you have a storm that's coming through the Gulf that creates this storm surge all along or could create that storm surge all along the west coast of Florida. And you have communities. If you look up and down the map, mm -hmm. you've got multiple cities and communities. We're north of Tampa with smaller, not as urbanly dense areas as the city of Tampa. But a lot of these communities that live right next to the water, these are the areas that have that evacuation order in place. So even if the hurricane goes even further west, we still have that possibility of the water surging and affecting uh, some of these properties here. And then, of course, we're still in the area that could get some of that wind. We have trees that can yeah. fall. And there's also an alert from authorities about the power outages that are also a possibility with thousands of workers prepared just east of us to come in and make repairs if necessary. Well, you're probably in for a long night. Appreciate you spending some time with us this evening. But of course, as Florida families are trying to evacuate, state leaders are warning them that there's the possibility of contamination in the fuel in their fuel. They could get stuck on the roads because there was diesel in gas station storage tanks. The state says somebody just made a mistake at the port of Tampa. The state believes 29 gas stations across Florida's Gulf Coast likely were contaminated with this tainted fuel supplied by Sitco. The gas started being sold after 10 in the morning Saturday at places like 7-Eleven or BJ's Wholesale and other locations. They have been asked to stop selling the gas until the contaminated fuel is replaced and the tanks have been cleaned. But meanwhile, Florida officials are warning that vehicles or generators that have the tainted fuel, both gasoline and the diesel, they might not function properly. Joining me now for more is Gas Buddy's head of petroleum analysis, Patrick DeHaan. Uh, Patrick, good of you to join us here on Last Call. Uh, have you ever Thanks heard of something me, like this? You know, this is pretty rare. And to have this event right as Hurricane Adalia is making landfalls, pretty impressive. We've seen that from time to time, tankers, single tankers can accidentally contaminate fuel. Usually it's when they bring fuel and put it into the wrong tank under the gas station. 
it's extremely rare that you see an entire uh, cargo of, of diesel potentially loaded into a gasoline storage facility. So this is very rare. And as you mentioned, hopefully motorists are watching the list of stations that have this fuel. Hopefully they're not trying to get out of harm's way only to find that their vehicle's not going to run. So a pretty serious situation. Keep in mind the complexity of this now. Some of those stations, in fact, some 30 stations are going to have to essentially flush their underground storage tanks. This comes at a time that millions potentially of Floridians are going to evacuate. And we are seeing stations that are starting to run low with fuel as evacuees overwhelm gas station supplies. Are you looking at a certain part of Florida where that could be a problem, that, that fuel shortages could already be in the specter of a possibility? Oh, absolutely, Contessa, especially northern Florida. Port Tampa is a big one, and that supplies much of the northern part of the state and even further south. Right now, you're looking at outages in Gainesville, about 5% of stations without fuel right now. Tampa reporting about 2.5% of stations without fuel. This is normal as we get into a hurricane to see these numbers. And again, that fuel contamination probably exacerbating some of these numbers, making them worse because some stations simply don't have fuel to pump now or they're still mitigating that contaminated fuel. So again, you know, motorists are going to want to pay attention. It's already difficult enough with some stations that have run low of fuel. Now they have to deal with the possibility of contaminated fuel. All right. Thank you so much for joining us and talking a little bit here about uh, what the people are facing as they're trying to get out of town. Patrick, thanks. Florida is still among the many states recovering from Hurricane Ian, which was the costliest disaster in the country last year. That storm caused more than $112 billion in damages. The risks, though, apparently not deterring Warren Buffett. A new report shows Berkshire Hathaway made a big bet earlier this year on Florida's reinsurance market, banking it would deliver huge premiums with minimal losses. But as Hurricane Adalia moves toward landfall and hurricane season is ramping up, is Florida's insurance industry and apparently Berkshire Hathaway prepared to foot the bill? Joining me now for more, Neptune Flood Insurance CEO Trevor Burgess. Trevor, it's good to see you. Thank you for being here on Last Call. First of all, I want to say that you're one of the biggest, if not the biggest, private flood insurers in the state of Florida, but at, what, 45,000 policies in Florida? That's right. 45,000 of our 163,000 customers are in Florida. So we're paying close attention to the storm. And I have to say, for those people who are on the fence about evacuating, it's not too late, and you should definitely do so now. You and I had That's talked, we had talked a few years ago about the, the kind of satellite imagery that uh, Neptune is using to analyze the risk of individual properties and whether they could flood or not. When you're looking at a storm like Adelia coming in, how much are you going back and relying on that satellite imagery and the, and the kinds of high-tech advances that have been made in assessing risk to wonder where you need to put your resources now? We're looking very carefully at which of our customers are at most risk from this storm. Leading up to an event like this, we encourage Floridians and anyone at harm for hurricanes to buy flood insurance. Unfortunately, only 15% of the households in Florida have flood insurance. So we're way underinsured. But now it's too late to buy flood insurance for this storm. So we're using that data to analyze which of our customers are going to need help tomorrow morning. Well, the interesting thing is that the Wall Street Journal made a big impact with this story that it did, quoting the Insurance Inf Information Institute and Munich Re, that 12% of American 
property owners do not have homeowners insurance. And of those, about half their, their total household income is less than $40,000. Insurance has just become a luxury for many people. If they don't have to have it, if their mortgage lender does not require it, they are taking a gamble on it. In Florida, insurance has been on this upward trajectory that has been unmanageable for many, many people. The state has tried to deal with that by dealing with the lawsuit issue, which drives up the price of insurance, by trying to crack down on fraud. When you're looking at the, the moves that they've made, have you seen an increase in people buying flood insurance because of the changes Florida has made in its uh, legal requirements for insurance? Yes, I think many of the recent changes made by the Florida legislature will help to stabilize the Florida homeowners insurance market. But they also set a new requirement for citizens policyholders, that's the state insurer of last resort that insures 1.5 million Floridian homes, that they're all gonna have to buy flood insurance because your basic homeowners insurance policy does not cover the risk of flooding in the United States. You have to buy a policy from the NFIP or from a company such as Neptune. You may have heard me just mention that Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway decided that reinsurance in Florida might be a good bet because reinsurance prices have been going up and they're not regulated in the same way that insurers are. Give me a sense of where you're looking at not only the cost of reinsurance, but the cost if you have to go in and replace people's homes because of their flood insurance, that materials and labor now are so much higher than they have been the last few years. We have this combination right now of high inflation, expensive material costs, and accelerating climate change, which is increasing the frequency and severity of storms. We saw that last year, and unfortunately, we're about to see it again tonight with Adalia. So this combination together means that the prices that consumers are having to pay for their insurance is just rising, and that's part of the cost of living in the sunshine state of Florida. Now, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway entering the state makes sense because the prices that consumers are beginning to pay finally can make sense in the models for their return objectives. Trevor Burgess, good to talk to you, thank you. Thank you. Here's what happened to your money today. The Dow, well, it, and it closed higher by 0.85%. The S&P 500, up a percent and a half. The NASDAQ closed up one and three quarters percent. The biggest winner of the day, Tesla, up 7.7%. The biggest loser, commercial truck maker, Packard, down 2.7%. Up next, China's stunning covert influence operation uncovered by Meta. Plus, after a lightning rally, shares of VinFast now doing their best um, Thelma and Louise impression. Hey, don't say we didn't warn you. Stay with us. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. And first up, Hewlett Packard posting mixed results after the bell. The company cited slowdowns in demand for printers and PCs leading to a more cautious outlook from the company. The stock is trading in the red in the after hours. Look at that down 6.6%. Next up, PVH Corp. That's the parent company of fashion brands like Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. It reported strong results after the bell. It's seeing particular success in Asia. PVH's CEO also touts growth in the company's direct-to-consumer business in both stores and e-commerce. Shares up 2% after hours. A new report today from Meta reveals a massive propaganda campaign with links to Chinese law enforcement. It involves thousands of fake accounts. And CNBC's Eamon Javers has been diving into this story. Eamon, what did you learn? Hey there, Contessa. Well, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, said today it's taken down this Chinese disinformation campaign that it calls part of the largest known cross-platform covert influence operation in the world. The campaign, which appeared to be centrally controlled in China, was active on more than 50 platforms and forums, Meta says, including Facebook, Instagram, X, which is formerly Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, and a whole bunch of others. The campaign generated positive commentary about China and promoted criticism of the United States and Western foreign policy generally. Meta says it's taken down more than 7,000 Facebook accounts and 954 pages related to this Chinese campaign, which they say has been going on since at least 2019, and it's known in the security community as, quote, spamiflage. But Meta says the spammy nature of this operation meant it didn't really have as much real-world impact as its huge scale would suggest. These operations are, are big, but they're clumsy. And what we're not seeing is any real sign that they're building authentic audiences on our platform or elsewhere on the Internet. So, for example, Meta said some of the accounts appear to have been purchased in bulk from third-party countries like in Vietnam and Bangladesh. So in one case, an account that had been used to post ads about lingerie would suddenly switch to posting Chinese government talking points. In other cases, keywords in the posting were misspelled or posted in the wrong language. So it's not likely that a lot of people were really fooled by this. Still, Meta says it's important to jump on these cases to understand how they work and to limit their influence overall. And in one sign of just how fast these campaigns can move, Meta says that within 24 hours of the launch of their new Twitter competitor Threads, they spotted and removed accounts related to a known disinformation operation. So these things jump fast, Contessa. Well, it sounds like Meta is really jumping on the bandwagon, making sure that it gets credit for going in and cracking down on misinformation, which, of course, it has come under fire, not just from the United States, but from many countries for, for not doing soon enough and to a degree that prevented influence. For the Chinese government side, I mean, if it's a spamiflage, which I think is the best name ever, right. is not that effective, then why do they do it? <laughs> 
Well, that's a really good question, and there's a couple of theories on that. One is that this is just the result of a giant sprawling bureaucracy, and you've got people who are sort of uh, at the bottom of that bureaucratic uh, organization who are just kind of cutting and pasting and putting these things out there and reporting up the line to their bosses, you know, hey, we did 9,000 accounts today, and ca calling that progress. And so this is sort of an ineffective government thing. The other idea is that it's useful for the Chinese government to have these networks out there uh, in case they want to activate them in the future for something else, right? So that's part of why Meta is saying that they want to wrap these things mm. up as quickly as they can, learn about how they're organized, shut them down when they spot them as they did today. Amen. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Still you ahead, President Biden rolls out a landmark plan to lower prescription drug prices. Could it create more problems than it solves? Stay with us. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Welcome back. The Biden administration is taking on drug prices. The White House announced today the list of medicines from pharma giants like Pfizer and Eli Lilly that will be subject to price negotiations with Medicare, the plan part of the president's Inflation Reduction Act. Today at the White House, the president highlighted the potential savings. According to the Congressional Budget Office, it will save the federal government $160 billion over the next 10 years because Medicare won't be paying less for the prescription drugs they're making available to seniors. Let's bring in our panel, former North Dakota Senator and CNBC contributor Heidi Heidkamp, along with Mick Mulvaney, Actum Consulting co-chair and former acting White House chief of staff. Thank you both for joining us on Last Call. You know, uh, Senator Heidkamp, it seems to me I was reading a news release from 2015 where you and some other Democratic senators had banded together and you were trying to get answers from Medicare about why drug prices were so high. I, it seems to me like now eight years later, uh, it's finally time to see something done on it. Are you pleased with what the president has done? Well, I honestly am thrilled, not only for seniors, but also for all of the um, people who are paying out of pocket who don't have a particularly aggressive Part D supplement. And so this is a huge benefit to consumers. But, you know, let, let, let's just calibrate. A lot of times the argument is, look, we're able to provide lower cost prescription drugs to developing countries, countries who couldn't afford it. Netherlands, they could afford to pay what we pay for insulin. They could afford to pay what we're paying. But take, take something like Oseptic, uh, the new uh, insulin drug. Or, or diabetes drug. And in uh, Netherlands, they pay much less. In fact, four and a half times less than what we pay. And so I think it's time to have an honest discussion about prescription drug costs. I know there's a lot of complaining, but I think this is going to be wildly popular with consumers, and it should be wildly popular with taxpayers who are going to save a lot of money. Will it be wildly uh, popular with Republicans, Mick? 
<laughs> no, probably not. I mean, look, we've had this debate now for 20 years. Heidi and I had this debate when we were in Congress together, which is one of the things the Republicans worry about is that if you force these lower prices, it's not really a negotiation. The government will set a maximum fair price. That's the language in the statute. Government experts will get together and decide what the fair price is, and that's what they will pay for these drugs. And Republicans have been concerned for a long time. If you do that, it will absolutely discourage new innovation. Yes, we pay too much here in this country for drugs, in part because the Europeans don't pay their fair share. But I'm not sure forcing American drug companies to take less money here is the way to solve but, that. But Why wait. aren't we pressuring the Europeans to take more to pay more? Here's my question, though. Isn't this the American mm -hmm. capitalist way that you go in and you use the clout that you have to try and get the best price possible? Um, yes, I'm unless you've got, you. uh, was that to me or to her? Go I'm ahead, sorry. Mick, Mick, go ahead. Yeah, in basic, yes. But if it's not really a negotiation, keep in mind, what's going to happen now if that maximum fair price that the government sets for any particular drug forces a drug company not to sell that drug? Are we going to accept that? Are we going to accept not having the best leukemia drug in Medicare? Is that something that Heidi is willing to say, okay, yeah, we're going to save money, so we're not going to offer the best leukemia drug to Medicare patients? I don't think that's what people want uh, when it comes to, to getting their prescription drugs and so forth. Look, are prices too high? Yes. Are there better ways to fix it than having the government effectively set the price? Yes. But look, we've had this debate for 20 years. Now we're going to see who was right. If the costs come down dramatically and there's no impact on innovation, then the Democrats were right. If we don't end up getting new drugs in this, in this, in this country or in this world, then the Republicans will be proven unfortunately correct. In fact, the former FDA commissioner, uh, Scott Gottlieb, who's also a CNBC contributor, came on Power Lunch with me earlier. And here's what he said about the unintended consequences of the White House plan. Let me play it. You have to believe that pricing does follow some semblance of what's having the biggest public health impact. And I think on the whole, that is the case. Um, really good drugs end up getting priced more. Now capital is going to be allocated according to government rules. And if you look at the prices that they set today, the way they scoped in, for example, the insulins, which looked like a policy outcome in search of a rationale, that's the kind of decision making that you're going to get from CMS. What do you think, Senator Heidkamp? I think that the time has come to have an honest discussion about how pricing is uh, managed with the pharmaceutical companies. And yes, I get what everyone's saying and what Mick's saying and what Scott's saying. But the bottom line is they haven't come up with a plan that will lower costs for consumers, that will create equity between us and the rest of the world. And, you know, they're forgetting that for a lot of years, the VA has negotiated drug prices without catastrophic results. We'll see where this heads. But, you know, I think this is a good day for consumers. It's a good day for taxpayers. And we'll see how the negotiation goes. And we'll see how the lawsuit goes. Um, the, as you know, the drug companies have filed a lawsuit claiming that this activity is unconstitutional. Um, I've read some of this information, not really persuaded by it. But then we're a long way from kind of getting this yeah. resolved. But today is a good step. I, you know, it's interesting, too, this presumption that drug prices will come down to a level that would just be onerous for the pharmaceutical companies. I'm curious, in the meantime, Mick, can you foresee a scenario where they hike up the rates ahead of the negotiation and those going into effect so that they can bring them back down? You know, Contessa, I was looking at that today. I didn't look at that, that exact question, but looking through the uh, the summaries and so forth of the legislation, 
I, I had to stop and wonder how many loopholes there are, how many ways there are will be to game the system how many, for both sides. How many sides, opportunities will the government have to game the system, not only just the, the pharmaceutical company. So anytime you get the government injected into a market like this, you're going to end up with all sorts of perversions. That's just the way it is. This is not a market when the government comes out to set a price. And by the way, the one thing that struck me in that opening comment about Biden, I hadn't seen that until you played it, $160 billion dollars. Uh, over 10 years is $16 billion a year. That's that's not, when you're running a deficit over of a thousand billion dollars a year, which is what a, a trillion is, I was really expecting this to save more money. $16 billion a year is really, again, It's don't get me wrong, a billion dollars is yeah. still a lot of money, but this is not going to move the needle at all on the deficit. Well, meanwhile, we know that uh, waste, fraud, and abuse in these systems is costing roughly $100 billion, and the enforcement investment that gets made is a tiny little drop in that bus bucket. Senator Heidkamp, Mick Mulvaney, thank you both for joining me. Appreciate the conversation. An important Thanks, Thanks, programming Contessa. note tomorrow. This is so important. Brian is back. But the really important part is that he's back with Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. They're going to chat his economic vision for the country, among many other topics, 7 p.m. Eastern. You won't want to miss that. Still ahead. The crash we saw coming a mile away, VinFast shares plummet. But the wild run may be far from over. Plus a huge court victory for crypto that could finally end its winter. Don't go away. It's the last call watch list. First up, VinFast, the insane ride for the Vietnamese EV maker has taken a rather ugly turn. It shot up yesterday to become, are you ready for this, the third most valuable automaker in the world, despite the fact it only has 137 vehicles registered in the United States. But now the stock has fallen spectacularly, closing down more than 40% today. VinFast volatility is due in part to its few publicly available shares. Today's big drop means its founder, Pham Nhat Vong, who owns 99.7% of VinFast's parent company, has lost roughly $27 billion. His net worth has been a roller coaster. According to Forbes, he was the 16th wealthiest person in the world yesterday. And now, with a mere $40 billion to his name, he's the 30th wealthiest person. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. From one volatile asset to another, let's check in on Bitcoin today. The price for the world's largest cryptocurrency jumped after a federal judge ruled the SEC has to revisit its earlier rejection of a Bitcoin ETF from Grayscale Investments. Essentially, it could pave the way for the first Bitcoin exchange-traded fund in the nation. CNBC's Mackenzie Sagalos joins us now. Dive into the news. Tell me what happened and what it means. So a lot of gains in the crypto market today, Contessa. After a federal judge called out the SEC saying the agency's decision-making was capricious and arbitrary, it is a huge blow to a federal regulator that has spent years cracking down on the crypto industry, which is why a lot of investors are calling this ruling a watershed moment for the sector, one that could lead to a flood of institutional money. BlackRock and Fidelity are just two traditional finance companies with plans to launch their own Bitcoin ETFs, which would allow investors much, much more easily gain exposure to the world's biggest cryptocurrency without having to actually own the coins themselves. 
The judge today specifically took issue with the SEC's logic for rejecting Grayscale's multiple attempts to convert its $17 billion Bitcoin trust into a Bitcoin ETF, calling that decision unlawful, adding that the agency failed to adequately explain why it approved futures-based ETFs but disapproved spot ETFs, despite them being very similar. Now, to be clear, today's ruling doesn't prevent the regulator from continuing to reject spot Bitcoin ETF applications, nor does it speed up the approval process. But symbolically, it is seen as a huge win. And it sent shares of Grayscale's Bitcoin trust, GBTC, up 17%. Okay, so you can see the investor enthusiasm on that decision by the judge. But the judge didn't say, you can't do it. They just said... You didn't explain why you did it. The reasons that you gave are capricious and arbitrary and what, the, the things that you said. Has anybody said to you, whoa, we should be putting the brakes on this because all that needs to happen is, I don't know, the SEC goes back and explains its rationale better than it did or goes back and takes another stab at it and comes back with uh, an explanation that is not capricious and arbitrary? I mean, it's a great question. And the SEC could technically come back, reject Grayscale's application on totally different grounds. But what happened today is the court rejected literally every single one of the arguments that were ma- like that was made in SC- the SEC's defense. And so I spoke to a lawyer in the last few hours, and they made the point that, hey, Gary Gensler really has two big options here. Withdraw Bitcoin futures ETFs, which is a very bad look, or delay Grayscale's application, accept BlackRock and Fidelity in the meantime, because they have these information sharing agreements built into them. And if anything, this becomes a political win for the SEC and Gary Gensler. Suddenly, he's captured some oversight of the Bitcoin spot market, even though Bitcoin is not a security. So So, you know, an interesting uh, political chess game here. Mac, thank you for joining us in studio. Let me get the reaction here of Anthony Pompliano, founder of Pomp Investments and an early Bitcoin investor. We would call you an early adopter. Anthony, do you think that the SEC will take another stab, will try to take down Grayscale and ETF and take another stab at the apple, so to speak? Yeah, Contessa, one of the things I think is really interesting here is this is the beauty of America, is we have market participants and regulators going into court, laying out their best argument, and the courts are deciding who they actually put more weight behind in that decision. And so one of the things that I think is really important is that the SEC uh, obviously has a choice to make now. No one knows what they're going to do. But I do think that if we go back two years and we look at when it was just Grayscale or it was just kind of fly-by-night organizations who had ETF applications in That's very different than today, where we now have BlackRock, Fidelity, ARK Invest, et cetera. And so I do think that an idea's time has come. A Bitcoin spot ETF is likely to be approved at some point in the next 12 to 18 months. When it happens, how it happens, no one knows. But I do think that the American court system, this is the beauty of this country. And if we want to continue to embrace the entrepreneurial DNA of the country while also having a fair financial market that protects investors, this is a perfect example of how we can do that and allow market participants and regulators to lay out their arguments in front of those courts. Do you think that this momentum changes at all the liquidity in the crypto market? Yeah, look, Bitcoin is in a really, really interesting point. About 70% of the Bitcoin that's in circulation today is being held by people who are not selling. They've been holding this Bitcoin for over a year despite all of the volatility. And so whenever you have something like a Bitcoin spot ETF that's kind of on deck, it's next up, and if it does get approved, that will lead to a very significant increase in demand specifically from institutions. Remember, Bitcoin has been adopted by individuals in retail first. If they wanted to buy Bitcoin, they've gone and signed up for a crypto exchange and they've bought Bitcoin. 
But now we are seeing institutions knocking at the door. And so that's a huge wave of demand. But don't forget, we're less than one year away from the Bitcoin halving as well, which is a supply shock. And so if you go back to 2020, we've seen this playbook before. We had a supply shock in the halving. We had a demand shock coming from all of the money printing from the government. Now what we're seeing is a supply shock coming from the halving within the next 12 months. And we're seeing a potential demand shock coming from these ETF applications. Last time we went up hundreds of percent in price. And if we get both of these events to occur within a 12 month period, I think that we will see a very big price appreciation in does Bitcoin it, once again. Does it matter who gets to market first? That's the big question. Uh, it does matter who is there first. We have seen time and time again from the ETF applications, whoever is first to market, they tend to suck up all of the assets. What I think would be very interesting, I don't know if this is going to happen, but it would be interesting to see the SEC approve multiple issuers all at the same time and kind of let the market figure it out. Rather than the SEC play referee and decide who goes first, who goes second, instead if they just said, look, we're going to let you guys all into the market and then let you all figure out who gets the assets, I think that may be something that would be interesting uh, I can for see it now. It's like, it's like a racehorse. You line them all up and then count it down and just open the gates and let them run the race. All right, Mr. Pompliano, thank you for your time, sir. Coming up. Absolutely. Thanks Amazon, so much for having me. Yeah, sure thing. Amazon CEO turns the screws on workers defying a return to the office. It may not make any difference. We'll explain why next. Welcome back. A quarter of U.S. workers might now be working from home permanently. A new report from Goldman Sachs finds the share of Americans working from home for at least part of the week has now stabilized at 20 to 25 percent. That's down from a peak of 47 percent at the height of the pandemic, but still a huge jump from the average of 2.6 percent before COVID took over our lives. Joining me to discuss this is Lydia Moynihan, a business reporter at The New York Post, who's been covering this. I mean, I think it's fascinating when you look at, at a quarter of the workforce remotely working at the same time that you have Andy Jassy telling Amazon workers, get back to work. Our records show that you're not badging in. Get back or else. The fact that we're still having this conversation about what the future of work is going to look like and the fact that the debate is still raging, I think, says everything that you need to know about where we are right now. And we knew that we weren't going to be where we were at the height of the pandemic when everyone was remote, but we also knew it wasn't going to go back to where it was pre-pandemic, where people didn't have any flexibility. And I think two companies that really encapsulate to me where we are kind of in this discussion are Zoom and Goldman Sachs. Zoom, which arguably benefited more than any other company uh, from the work from home trend, even they earlier this month said, we want our people back on a hybrid schedule because we think there is value to being in person and having that collaboration. Goldman Sachs, which arguably is the most aggressive company about trying to get everyone back to work. Last year, they took a victory lap on this network. You had David Solomon saying that he'd succeeded, mission accomplished, people were back five days a week. Well, they haven't been able to sustain that. And last week we reported they were having to sort of gently nudge employees to actually follow through up and show up to work five days a week um, it, it, because it people does, weren't doing it does that make you on their own. When, whether that mission accomplished banner is just going to forever be put into the cedar chest because so often it just doesn't work out that way. And we also got new stats here, Lydia, where U.S. mothers are returning to work. Those women aged 25 to 54 with children younger than 18. 
we're seeing their participation in the workplace at historic levels that the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has never seen before. Part of the reason for that is the ability to work remotely. Do, when you're reporting this out and you're talking to CEOs, do they understand the benefit that gives their workers when there's more flexibility? Hypothetically, yes, I think they do. But there is some sort of competition, it seems like, between a lot of CEOs to get their people back to work. And I speak with the CEOs, and they say their goal is still five days a week. There's one CEO who likes to joke that he believes in a hybrid work model because people should be able to work remotely on weekends. And then I speak with the employees who say, <laughs> we've tasted this freedom and this flexibility, and guess what? We're still doing a great job at work. The world hasn't ended. We are not going to give that up. And so I think Labor Day may be a bit of a flashpoint um, where people kind of have to clash and figure out what is this new equilibrium. I will note you mentioned what Angie Jassy said earlier. They are on a hybrid model. So they are just going in three days a week. And I think the real question here is, are there going to be teeth to what these CEOs say? Because a lot of them are saying everyone should be back. But the real question is, are there going to be consequences? And are those actually going to be enacted? And I think that's what everyone is waiting to see before they give up all of their flexibility and all of that freedom. Lydia, thank you. Coming up, got a health problem? Make an appointment with Dr. ChatGPT. Sound crazy? Apparently, it's not all that crazy. Let me explain next. You know, they always said an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but now chat GPT might be coming for that stethoscope, or is it the apple? A new study from Mass General Brigham Hospital finds chat GPT makes diagnoses and patient care recommendations with 72% accuracy on textbook case studies. Axios Global Tech correspondent Ryan Heath joins me now, been writing about this story. First of all, that is incredible. Like they, they go into this and then, and then what? Like how, how do you ask the question of ChatGPT about the medical case? So these are peer-reviewed case studies that uh, junior doctors and other doctors have trained on in the past from a leading pharmaceutical company. And then what the researchers did was go in and probe through different elements of the case and ask ChatGPT how to come up with a list of potential conditions that each set of symptoms would relate to. Then they asked for diagnosis, and then they asked to walk through all the steps of what medications and other care the chatbot would provide. And what we know, now know is that ChatGPT did as well, basically, as a junior, a new doctor would do. Now, that's not true for every single junior doctor. Obviously, doctors have different <laughs> varying levels of uh, success with any given patient. But the authors wait. of the report were quite astounded. Well, OK, they wait, wait, wait. But, Ryan, do they make real human being doctors go through something similar where they're like, can you guess what condition this actually is? Yes, that's exactly right. Now, the other thing to bear in mind is that the human doctors still have a big advantage when a patient comes in and is unable to present a lot of information about themselves. Like, let's imagine a German-speaking tourist falls over, hits their head, turns up at the hospital in New York City. A human is going to have a much bigger advantage in dealing with that situation, even with all those language and other barriers, than a chatbot is. So we're still at the stage where a chatbot can help a doctor 
but it's not ready to go out there and do anything on its own. Like it's really there in assistant mode for the time being. And the authors of this report want to see the success rate get up to 80 or 90% before you started sort of asking a chatbot to, to make any decisions on anyone's behalf. We saw some uh, report on the information that OpenAI, Ryan, is on pace to hit a billion dollars in revenue over the next year. Yep. When, when you're looking at the future of chat GPT, can you imagine more applications like this where you're arguing over a real life benefit? Yep, and I think that's where the real money is. As successful as OpenAI has been, I don't think the money is in those core innovations. It will make some people some money, but the fact that anyone can go out and get an open source uh, language model now and do something fairly similar to ChatGPT shows you that it's gonna be other businesses that figure out how to unlock the money pot, the ones that find yeah. the applications for regulated industries, traditional large companies, how they should structure their data and take advantage of AI. So we won't only be talking about open AI in six months or a year yeah. or two years time for the rest of our lives, presumably. Ryan, thank you. Thank Let's you go that. back in time. This day in 1997, a little DVD by mail service called Netflix was founded by Reed Hastings and Mark Randolph, which started as a pay per rental model, <clears throat> evolved a couple years later into a subscription service. Millions of Americans got their favorite films and, and TV shows shipped to the mailbox with no due dates, late fees, shipping or handling. After rejecting an offer from Jeff Bezos, Hastings and Randolph offered to sell Netflix to Blockbuster for $50 million. And Blockbuster infamously said, nah, a decision that proved fatal for that company. Netflix began its transition to streaming in 2007. Online streams overtook DVD shipments two years later. And Netflix recently announced that it finally is putting its DVD by mail service to rest next month. After more than a decade of growth and bouts of serious concern with financial losses, Netflix now boasts more than 236 million subscribers globally and carries a market cap of $191 billion. That $50 million deal Blockbuster rejected, well, that was a bargain, wasn't it? Important programming note before we go. Tomorrow, Brian's back. He'll be joined by Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. They'll chat the economic vision for the country, and much more. 7 p.m. Eastern Time tomorrow. And that is your last call for tonight. Shark Tank is up next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.